0: Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. I like to fly. So the more I'm in a plane, the better, and I also live in an area of the city that a lot of people complain about when they live there because of the flying patterns that fly over our houses, Uh, but I'm always reminded of my my wanderlust to jump on a plane and go somewhere. As I'm coming back from wherever I'm coming from on a plane, I love to see Chicago overhead, to see The aerial view of almost the whole city. It's huge. It's so big you can't really even see it from your window uh, if you're flying back in or or leaving. Well, today we are going to uh, jump on the proverbial plane and we're going to have a five-week tour of the Gospels of the New Testament. So if you have been at Addison for any length of time, uh, you know that in previous years, We did something called Old Testament Overviews, uh, meaning where I attempted um, to preach one sermon on every book of the Old Testament. Uh, Those are there. They're online if you are curious. Um, And today we're going to start doing that with the New Testament. We're only going to do it for five weeks, and then we're going to finish Kings, the Lord willing, unless the King of Kings doesn't come back uh, before them, and uh, we do hope he, he does, and we live every day and every Lord's Day in light of that. So this is a flyover tour. When you go on tours, often you get to see things very specifically. We're not going to be able to do that today. A flyover tour is just going to give us vistas, and we have to keep moving on. And so we are taking on the Gospel of Matthew today. Yes, all 28 chapters, uh, but we're not going to do it um, chapter by chapter, or as some people say, verse by verse. Uh, we simply don't have that kind of time. And I know for a fact you don't have that attention span. Um, so and, uh, so, we're just going to do the overview. But at the very heart of the Gospels is an impulse to answer one question. Who is Jesus? So Matthew's Gospel, in particular, answers a question that has been burning in the heart of every human being for all of human civilization, whether or not they realize it. This is a question that you might inadvertently ask or have asked. And this is the question. Who fulfills what we failed to do, yet forms us into what we hope to be? Matthew's specific contribution to the portrait of the life of Jesus Christ helps us answer that question. The obvious answer is Jesus, but today we're going to fly over and see the particulars. And so just like you do in a flight, we're going to do some pre-takeoff flight procedures, meaning that we got to get a few things out of the way. Matthew was most likely written from ancient Syria to a Jewish Gentile audience sometime between 60 and 69 A.D., all right? That's somewhat important, but not necessarily important, but that is before the fall of Jerusalem. At least that's uh, where I lean. And Matthew, as a gospel, as a capital G gospel, is a type of literature. The Gospels are theological portraits on the same subject, the evangelists or the gospelizers, the guys writing these gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these are foundational witnesses to the person of Christ. Now, they contain enough about Jesus, but they are not exhaustive to riff off. The Apostle John, at the end of his gospel, he basically said that, man, to to write about Jesus, you you really can't put together all the libraries of the world and uh, server space, if you will, to write about Jesus. So we have, the gospels are, are selections, they're portraits. And I think Matthew's montage of Jesus toggles between his deeds and his discourses. So the only kind of uh, thing we're going to get to in terms of an outline um, is going to be looking at this. So if you have a Bible, I want you to first, uh, first of all, let's read Matthew 1, 17 to 25, and then we're going to look at some key hangers in the whole gospel. So I'm going to start from Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 17 through the end of the chapter. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now flip forward to verse chapter 4, verse 17. You might even want to circle these or draw some arrows after this. 417 says this, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's one major marker in the book of Matthew. Now, if you're into marking in your Bible, draw a little arrow um, to chapter 7, verse 28, and then turn there. Chapter 7, verse 28 is the end of Jesus' great sermon. And scripture tells us there, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority. So we have Jesus finishing. Draw another arrow and go to 11.1. Mark 11.1. Not mark, but note in your Bible. Matthew 11.1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. I'm just going to note here. Matthew is deceptively complex, yet simple. It is beautiful. It is a masterpiece. We think, oh, it's the first book of the New Testament. We get a little uh, relief from all the hubbub of the, the prophets, and we kind of are let in lightly with the Gospel of Matthew. Indeed. But it is, the more you get into it, the more beauty and cohesion you see. To 1353. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. There's another structural cue. Two more. Draw a line. Go to 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. There's another one, the last one, and it points to 26 Chapter 26, verse 1. You say, why, what, is it, what does it matter if I mark my Bible or not? Well, here's why. Because in five years, you're going to be reading, maybe from the same copy of Scripture, and you're going to see this, and suddenly, things are going to kind of, lights are going to go off for you. So this may not serve you right now, Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, and there we have it. I believe Matthew teaches us, if I could summarize it in one sentence, is that Jesus fulfills past hopes in order to forge a new kingdom. Jesus fulfills past hopes in order to forge a new kingdom. Now, if you are here at Addison for any length of time, you know that um, everything here that we do and say and preach, sing, is all about Jesus. And now I'm telling you that every... Every sermon for the next five weeks is going to be on the Gospels, which is about Jesus. Okay, so um, no apologies, really, but you wonder, as I do, uh, what are, how in the world are, are you, Will, going to be able to like, say something new about Jesus every week? And I'm, I'm thinking, I, I, that's a great question. So if we liken the Gospels to, to music, Jesus would be the bass clef, the bottom, in all the Gospels. So what Matthew does, Matthew's gospel, can I say, he plays on three themes. So that's, our, that's how our, our, we're gonna organize today. Matthew's gospel plays on three themes or melodies, if you will. One is fulfillment, the other is forgiveness, and the other one is formation. In fulfillment, Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptural prophecies. Now, real quick before I keep going, so we're on point one already. You could just listen. You could have your Bible open to Matthew, and if I hear pages turning, you will not offend me, because if you get lost because you're just enamored with this book and this story of Jesus, you won't offend me. Bravo. So I hope that you can savor Jesus today by being a little bit more familiar with how he fulfills. The first major theme that Matthew strums is fulfillment. He specifically is the fulfillment of scriptural prophecies. We heard one already in our reading, but there are several times in the Gospel of Matthew where it says something like this, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So if you're thinking around in your Bible now and you have a highlighter, you can highlight those or you know maybe tr- trace a trail, but just listen. Jesus is the miracle man-child of a virgin who was God's Shekinah glory, wrapped in skin, bones, and capillaries. God with us. Born in a specific locale called Bethlehem. This little sweet Jesus boy, who was the Son of God, was preserved in and called up from, surprise, Egypt. Ah, and he was Preserved in and called up as the new Israel. But he was raised in Nazareth. This is all in fulfillment of prophecy. This Jesus is the fulfillment not only of scriptural prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all righteousness. So if you notice back in chapter 3, verse 15, he's coming up to the familiar scene at the Jordan River where his cousin, John the baptizer, who is somewhat of an odd chap, is, is doing the straightforward thing, preaching the gospel in his eccentric way and baptizing people. And people are, people are falling for this message of repent. But what's odd is that his cousin Jesus is waiting in line patiently to be baptized. And this throws the baptizer off. Well, wait, wait a minute, I... I, I I should be baptized by you. Jesus says, John, let it be so that I may fulfill all righteousness. No questions asked. And the heavens split open as Jesus was baptized, and the Holy Spirit came down. And that voice that you want to hear said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This was the kickoff of Messiah's ministry. And then in chapter four, he fulfills all righteousness by going into the the wilderness for 40 days and has a victory in the wilderness, which for 40 days sounds like something that happened 1,500 years before when the people of God called Israel went into a wilderness and royally failed. But here, Jesus in 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water, He fulfills all righteousness. He undoes Israel's failure in the wilderness. And he, in turn, becomes the new Israel, the new possibility. He fulfills God's will. Jesus' fulfillment of righteousness is reinforced in his great sermon when he said in chapter 5, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. End of the chapter. You therefore must be perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. So you're thinking, okay, this is the modern four. Yo, you got to be as good, if not better, than the Pope if you want to get into heaven of the most religious, saintly person you know on earth. If you're not as good as them, you have no chance. And then if you're not perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect, you have no way. This sermon was a masterpiece of religious rhetoric, if you will, because what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount is that he was creating a need and that was the impossibility of pleasing God and of only one person being able to do that. And that was the man giving the sermon. How about the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse five, that says, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases as he healed Peter's mother-in-law, chapter eight, verse 17. I mean, and wasn't Jesus the one who could speak great truths and parables so that only some caught the meeting and others didn't? Chapter 13, verse 35. Or wouldn't he be the one to arrange for his humble transportation on Palm Sunday? Chapter 21, verse 4, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. He is fulfilling Scripture. And by all this fulfillment of Scripture and all of his personal righteousness, Jesus is forging a new religion, a new kingdom community. Therefore, if you want to flip over to chapter 12, Jesus, Messiah, is the greater temple It says, there I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Wow. The temple was the the spectacle in Jerusalem that the world flocked to, that Israel flocked to. And in a casual conversation with his disciples, Jesus said, yeah, but I'm the greater temple. If Jesus is the greater temple, he is showing that he is the priest leader par excellence of a new religion. Jesus is also the greater Jonah. Go to the end of the chapter, verse 41. When the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, we want a sign from you, and Jesus throws it back at him and says, only evil and adulterous people want signs. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the prophet par excellence. Jonah was unfaithful. Jonah was unwilling to go preach to who God told him to go preach to. Jesus isn't that way. But Jesus, in a sense, is like Jonah, in that as Jonah went down in the belly of the fish, which, yes, cards on the table, that happened. How? We can't explain, but God worked it out. And as that prophet was in the belly of the fish, Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights settling that by his willing sacrifice and burial for three days in the earth, that he was Israel's ultimate prophet. So we have the greater priest in the temple, the greater prophet in his burial, and he's the greater Solomon. Jesus Christ is the greater Solomon, settling all debates on who Israel's best king really was. Just look in the next verse. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here one of the greatest chapters of the old testament in terms of the best news in the old testament is first kings 10 israel met its heyday; they were in the land they were under their king they were being a blessing to the nations in one sense it seemed like the abrahamic covenant had been fulfilled and you have this queen lady from the south, from Ethiopia probably, somewhere in Africa, and come and say, wow. Jesus said, something greater than Solomon is here. He settles the debate that had been raging for hundreds of years in Israel on who really was the best king of Israel. He, Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, is God's chosen and beloved servant, who thrills the very soul of God the Father. It is this Jesus who knows how to proclaim and bring justice into the world without breaking the bruised reed. Our attempts at bringing justice and proclaiming justice are often just fumbled up and we mess it up. But Jesus has brought perfect justice. He knows what he is doing. He can bring justice without oppressing one group at the exclusion of another. So i got to land the plane on this one. Fulfillment. What does that mean for you and me? All right, that's good. I see what you're saying. The main thrust here is that you should trust in fulfillment. Instead of being skeptical that the Bible has errors, or some, somehow culturally repressive. Could I ask you, could you doubt your own doubts for a second? And I, can I ask you, can I ask you just to ask this question, what if Christianity is right? What if, now don't hear from the preacher that he's you know, going through a period of raging doubt. I'm just trying to connect in a way to say that if you doubt the claims of this old book why not ask yourself, well, what if it's right? I mean, how about this? Let's I mean, do you think that solving climate change, ending racism or abortion or other justice issues will bring a fulfillment that God cannot? One of the points of Matthew, one of the great melodies of the gospel of Matthew is that Jesus fulfills scripture and the irony of that kind of prophetic fulfillment is that he fulfills our deepest needs and longings. Can you trust the one who says, come to me all you who labor and are weighed down and I will give you rest? No, no, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna make sense of Christianity on my own. I'm gonna piece it together rationally oh, that sounds like an exhausting endeavor. Why don't you just come to him? Try him. Throw it all on Jesus. Say, okay, Jesus, what about this? What about this? I have a problem with this with your people. I have a problem about this with your book. I have a problem with these things going on in the world. Can you handle it? And Jesus says, come. I'll give you rest. I'll dance with you. Young person, can you trust God's design for your sexuality and marriage? As Jesus talked about, I think, in Matthew 19, we hear that Jesus, silent on the issue of homosexuality. Well, indeed, he may have been silent, but that doesn't mean that he was uh, endorsing because he said male and female. Can you just trust God's design? And what if you're married? Married person, can you trust God's grace to keep you in marriage and not go chasing fulfillment in other illicit loves? If you've been married a while, you know it's tough. It doesn't mean the grass is greener on the other side. God's grace is for people in marriage, church, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is just as relevant in 2023 as it was in eighty sixty, And I ask you, church, can you trust the Bible enough to not reinvent the wheel on how we do church and what, what it means to build a healthy church? You know what? If we're patient, like farmers, God will bless. So Jesus fulfills past hopes to forge a new creation. Playing a counterpoint melody here, In Matthew's gospel, we find the second theme of forgiveness. Forgiveness is embedded in the very name of Jesus, as we heard earlier. You shall name him Jesus, Yeshua, which means salvation, because he will bring salvation to his people. He shall save his people, not period, The great preposition of Matthew right there, he shall save his people from their sins. Forgiveness is embedded in his name. It was the drum that the baptizer beat as people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan River were going out to him to be baptized. And what were they doing in their baptism? Matthew 3, 5, and 6 says they were confessing their sins. They were merely saying, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son and the Holy Spirit and all all, all the great doctrinal lines of Christianity. They were saying that those truths mean that something gives and I give. I confess my sins. Forgiveness was the result of Jesus' message, whether he was in Galilee or going to Jerusalem. We read the verse earlier. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Forgiveness is woven, woven into his greatest sermon, which is so often applicable to communion. When Jesus said this in Matthew 5:23 to 24, he said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother, your sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. And then later on, Jesus is challenging our views on vindication and retaliation. And Jesus says this, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Only forgiven people can turn the cheek. It's one of the main strings that we tune our prayers to. Think of the the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And it is his sovereign prerogative to demonstrate through miracles, chapter 9, verse 6, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I have authority on earth to forgive sins. You want proof? Pick up your bed and walk. There was no one else like this. Three times between chapters 16 and 20, Matthew emphasizes Jesus' prediction to his disciples of his imminent arrest, death, and resurrection. The closer it came, the more it was on his mind, and the more he needed to, ensure his, to tell his disciples, ensure that his apostles got it drilled into their heads what was about to happen. And as we read the Gospels, you sometimes think, even after so many times of telling them, they still didn't seem to get it. This is what he came for. It was all building up to this. To save his people from their sins, the moment of forgiveness was imminent. He had to finish in order for us to be forgiven. And the only way that was to happen was to die in their place, to satisfy a holy God. And, friends, in what happened in the cross, in the miscarriage of trial and justice at Jesus' trials, at the cross, in his burial, Jesus performed the great exchange. Forgiveness was realized. Forgiveness was finally achieved in his body when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew's rendition of that moment says the temple curtain tore in two, symbolizing that there was no more need for sacrifices No more need for this kind of ongoing repetition of forgiveness ritual, but that now we have forgiveness once and for all achieved by the Lamb of God. I love what theologian Reggie Kidd says. He said, the God-breathed Torah can anticipate forgiveness, but the God-man Jesus can provide forgiveness. We don't disbelieve Matthew, Mark, or sorry Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and say all that old stuff. What it was yearning for, anticipating, was forgiveness, release, and along comes Jesus and says, "I got gotcha. you." He provided it, and so our response in one word: if in fulfillment we trust in forgiveness. We turn. So personally, let's just bring it really, let's just bring the wheels down, friends. I wanna ask you, are you asking for forgiveness regularly? You might say, oh yeah, I ask God for forgiveness all the time. Praise God that you know you have that kind of free access to him. But do you, is this, The hallmark of your life? Are you asking for forgiveness from other humans, other God-bearing image image bearers of God? Do you say, do you say, "I, I, I messed up? My mistake. My bad, yo. Or do you tell your wife or your husband or your roommate or your coworker, listen, I sinned. I really did you wrong. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And are you ready to forgive? And are you ready to receive forgiveness? If you're hurting, which I don't doubt in a room this size that there are people here who are hurting, if you're hurting, are you turning to others to help you bear the burdens? Or maybe you're turning to others too much. So that, that shoe fits for everybody. Some of us, we bear our own burdens and our own problems and maybe the, the kinds of things people do to us and we just bottle up and we don't share and we don't tell other people. And we need to. Then there's others of us who share too much. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to get you wherever you're at to encourage you to be ready to ask for forgiveness, to repent, to receive counsel, to receive comfort, because that is the gospel way. We are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Church, I think the whole point of forgiveness in the gospel of Matthew has an application for us in that we as a church ought to turn in our evangelism, meaning... Are we urgent in evangelism? Do we leave here on Sundays and turn to the sectors and neighborhoods and professions that we inhabit with the message of forgiveness? You say, "Oh no, that's like, I mean, pastors do that kind of stuff. Well, pastors can't go where you work. Pastors can't go where you live. We are not omnipotent and omnicompetent and omnipresent and omniscient. Just last night, uh, my my son got a call that one of his roommates—not roommates, roommates neighbors—where he lives in Kalamazoo during the school year, committed suicide. Nice guy. And every time we hear something like that, someone dying. And by the way, friends, it's Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. The news is going to be tough. And we're rightly saddened. But when it comes to the theme of forgiveness, I think there's a difference between being saddened and having compassion. See, because what happens... When you hear the news, like a neighbor doing something like that, or however many get killed in Chicago on Memorial Day weekend, or this family member's trial, or that person's difficulty, your, your sadness starts to become overwhelming, doesn't it? Where, where you get to the point where you, you can't really handle it, and so you shut off. And you say, that's too bad. Or you feel helpless because you think, like, I got to do something Yes, but no. Compassion is the right response as we think about the message of forgiveness and the free offer of the gospel in Christ to be forgiven for our sins. We take the cue from Jesus when he was looking over the city and he saw the people and he had compassion. He was moved to compassion compassion is the gospel release and replacement of constantly being weighed down by sadness in our world. So how about this? Try this on for size. You could be at work on lunch break with a coworker and they're just telling you about some relational disappointments, things that are really hard with somebody else and they know that you don't know this other person, so you're a safe person. Right? Because you're probably going to be sympathetic. That's how it goes, right? Often. And so you listen. But do you know you have an opportunity when you're hearing somebody's kind of dump on you, you have an opportunity to explore the possibility of forgiveness with that person. not, not merely, well, you should just just forgive the person. No. But start asking just ask questions. Because underneath that relational disappointment and brokenness is a yearning for forgiveness and for reconciliation. And this book provides it in the person of Jesus. So, are all the epic fulfillments of the Old Testament? And all the forgiven individuals, the only melodies that Matthew harps on in his gospel? I mean, really, none of this would make sense unless he was up to something bigger in writing this masterpiece, unless Jesus was forging a new kingdom community, which leads us to our third and final theme of formation. The Gospel of Matthew starts off what we would think as a very boring way, a list of names. But it's one of the most, if not the most, strategic list of names in the Gospel. Because from that list of people comes the Messiah, comes Mary, comes Joseph. And then in chapter 4, you get Jesus Picking his disciples. And because Matthew is the writer, he has a little bit of prerogative. And in chapter 9, verse 9, he just slips in a self-reference where he talks about his own own calling as a a disciple. And then chapter 10, after Jesus has said to to his disciples about all the crowds, and he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And what does he do? In answer to his own prayers... Matthew, the way Matthew sets it up, he said he called his apostles and he lists them all out right there. And then what does he do? He sends them on them on a mission to Israel only to evangelize and spread the good news of the gospel. So Jesus is building this new community and there are, it's, a, it's a community of 12, which hints at a new Israel once again, a new people of God. But often you have crowds. You start at the chapter 5, Jesus is on a mountain and there are crowds. How about the feedings in chapters 14 and 15? At one time he feeds 5,000, another time he feeds 4,000. And Jesus would have to, at times, because of his popularity as this healer and this, this wise man, this rabbi, he would have to put out challenges to people who would say, I wanna follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, yeah? Why don't you just leave everything that you've got and follow me? There was a Jesus was constantly challenging people to count the cost of being a new family. And the growth of this new kingdom takes patience, not force. Turn to Matthew 13, please. Matthew, unlike Mark has a lot of record of Jesus's teachings. And this is one of them in Matthew 13. This is one of the the kind of like the hotspots of his teaching methodology, the the parables. There's one in particular that I like, Matthew 13. We're gonna look at verses 24 to 30. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do it? Does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, oh, no, no lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest and at harvest time. I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. If you want the inspired interpretation, it comes just a few verses later in verses 36 to 43. But Jesus is unlike me, a non-green thumb, because if I see a weed, I want to pull it out. But at the risk of pulling out something good, And Jesus, the master farmer, the kingdom builder, the church creator, is saying, actually, my plan is that both weeds and wheat would grow up together. Where? In the church. This will explain to you why elders are also not omniscient. Because sometimes people are let into the membership and later on are proven to be weeds and not wheat. The growth of the kingdom takes patience and not force, and that is one of the points Jesus is making. Jesus is all about, can I put it this way? This is so anti-American. Jesus is all about slow growth. Then informing this new kingdom community, there are characteristics of this new kingdom community that Matthew teases out. Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word "church." And you'd think for trying to teach about something new and, and, and getting uh, rallying troops together and, and uh, getting some energy and steam, that he would use this word more often. We don't know why. But he uses it once in verse uh, chapter 16 and once in chapter 18. But a characteristic of the new kingdom community, one of them, is right confessions. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, please. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, Jeremiah. He said then, but how about you? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Pause. That is a right confession. That was a miraculous confession. That's supernatural. People don't say those kinds of things on their own. That's what Jesus was telling them. Dude, no rabbi taught you this. Somebody revealed this to you, and Jesus credits his father for opening and enlightening his eyes to this kind of confession. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No, this is not the Catholic church. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So characteristic of the new kingdom community is right confessions. Jesus, King Jesus builds his church on right confessions, that is divinely revealed confessions. And then he delegates that authority to us. Basically he's saying if you can confess this, if you possess this kind of revelation, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus gives authority to Peter, and Peter, through the apostles, is giving authority to the church. That's why you hear around here, we talk about the keys of the kingdom being the possession of the members. Not merely the pastors. Another characteristic, flip over to Matthew 18. We're actually not going to read this, but this is another hot spot in terms of this newly formed community Another characteristic is humility in chapter 18. Some of his disciples saying, yo, you know, we want to, who's the greatest? Jesus tells, he brings a child. He says, this is the greatest. That's why I think children are key to a church. Because when you have children running around the church and yelling and screaming and interrupting everything, we are hearing the voices of what it's like to be faith-filled people. So we need The chillens amongst us and children display humility, dependence. You keep moving through there. Jesus says, "Woe to the world for temptations to sin." And Jesus says, "Another mark, hallmark is radical repentance. A true disciple is somebody who radically repents. She is leaving her sin." You keep going in that chapter, and see, some of these verses sing by themselves, but they have to be understood in context. Another mark or characteristic of the new kingdom community is meaningful mutual care. So in verses 10 to 20 of chapter 18, you have the the story, uh, the example, the parable of the lost sheep, and the crazy, again, inefficient you wouldn't do this in corporate America type of thing where you leave the 99 and chase the one. No, you, you, you invest in the, the 99, not in the kingdom. The shepherd leaves the 99 and he go chases the one. That's meaningful care. And if the shepherd does that, ought not his church to do that. And then he drills down deeper and says, I know you all are messed up, broken people, and you need forgiveness. So, when one of you offends the other, go to them. Settle it between yourselves. If that's not working out, there's no understanding. Blow it out a little bit to others in the church. And if there's no repentance on one side or the other, then tell it to the church. This is Jesus's. Uh, this is Jesus's prescription. For a healthy, healthily formed church, is that we mutually care for each other in these ways. It is not kind and loving to be silent about our sins and our differences in the church. In a way, biblical kindness is anti nice, the way we think of it in our current culture. Be nice. And if you wear that t shirt, that's fine, because I know you wear that t shirt because you are a very kind person and want to be kind. So just know that. (laughs) And if the message of forgiveness wasn't enough earlier, Jesus teaches the forgiveness is the disciples' constant duty. You can never out forgive Jesus, and you can never forgive enough. And then Jesus teaches us in his gospel, in Matthew's gospel, he teaches us what is the passport of the new kingdom community. Surprise, surprise. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet, teaches the free offer of the gospel in that all who come are clothed with special clothes. I happen to think that this refers to baptism. That to come to Christ, to accept the free offer of the gospel, is to say, is to mark yourself through baptism. You know, you say, are you believe we're saved by baptism. No, I'm not saying that at all. No. But baptism is the passport of the Christian. It is the new clothing. The reason, how are churches marked out? Churches are marked out by baptized people. And those baptized people, guess what? They celebrate communion. Communion. And Jesus gets the word out, to, out by his appointed emissaries. Go to the end of the book, because that's where we're going. Matthew 28, verses 18 to, 19, uh, 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This, This act of proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and marking them out through baptism, and then teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded is what the church is supposed to do. It is what the church is supposed to be. He gives the authority to proclaim salvation in his name. And part of the keys of the kingdom is to proclaim the gospel and weigh right confessions of faith and baptize people in the name of Jesus according to those confessions. What Jesus is doing is highly, can I say it this way, sacramental. So what's our response in this third melody of Matthew, of formation? I'll sum it up with this word. Train. Our fellowship fellowship covenant encourages us to live out our baptisms as a church family, in our family units, in our workplaces, in the places that we frequent, where we're known by non-Christians. Right? And though we know that the tall order demands of being disciples, as reflected in our fellowship covenant, which hopefully is reflective of Scripture, can only be met by God's grace, every member of the church must embrace a training mindset. That's part of the commission, teaching them, that is, who's the them? The new disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. Theologian David Wells indicts the church of today by saying this, it's very easy to build churches in which seekers congregate. It is, however, very very hard to build churches in which biblical faith is maturing into discipleship. You may be a truck driver professionally. You may be a librarian professionally. You may be a physician professionally. You may pay your bills by being a teacher. You may be professionally by day a consultant or a student, but you know what you are perpetually? A disciple. And this is why we need relationships in the church that reinforce the sufficiency of the gospel We constantly need to be training and to be trained. So I want to ask you, practically, church, you say, oh, yeah, bravo. Okay, we got our our fix of Matthew today. Good. I'm going to ask you, who are you training? Because disciples train and are training. And I want to ask you this, who's training you? Who's challenging you? I love what Mark Deber says when it comes to discipling. Discipling is simply doing deliberate spiritual good to other people who follow Jesus. So in the life of the church, I ask you, who are you doing spiritual good to and who's doing spiritual good to you? This means that maybe there's somebody ahead of you in the spiritual life that could be speaking into your life. Or maybe there's somebody in the church that you could help. Don't see yourself as like, well, I'm not ready yet. Our brother, Adam Wheaton, who's our pastoral resident, has kind of silently been starting something called character cohorts, which is just a a group of two or three people um, that meet for like five weeks. It's a mutually beneficial time where they encourage each other, and then they multiply. Character cohorts, why? Because our, our character needs help. It's not like you've achieved good character and then off you go. We constantly need our character honed. You could talk to Adam about that. It's not a program in our church. It's Bible. It's what we're supposed to do. Now, if this talk about Jesus from one of the authoritative biographies has shocked you, maybe it sounded a little audacious. You know why? Maybe it's because you've never truly known Him. And to know Him, to know Jesus, just upends our idea of community and tribalism. And what it does is it challenges us to deny ourselves and take up the cross of Jesus and follow him. Not the agendas out there, not the communities and tribes out there or online, but him. Thus, friend, I invite you, if you have not known this Jesus, I invite you today to turn to him. Repent of your sins, because all of us, that's how we got in. Be baptized. Believe the gospel. Matthew has presented us today with the only fulfilling king who basically turns failures into a family, a new community kingdom. And I close with the words of St. Augustine because I want us to cherish and revel in Jesus. I know we've gone so long. Augustine said this, thus have you heard that Christ is both David's son and David's Lord. David's Lord always. David's son in time. David's Lord, born of the substance of his father, David's son, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Ghost. Let us hold fast both. He was made that which he made, that what he made might not perish. Very man, very God, God and man, the whole Christ. Lord, help us to be impressed with Jesus. Lord, if anything in this sermon would detract from how beautiful and glorious and sufficient and good and right and true that he is, may we forget it. But we're asking now, as we go to the table, that you would help us to remember, and to remember to the point where we can taste the grace of our Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's Word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.